2: Welcome to the Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week, we're very pleased to welcome James Reynolds, global head of direct lending at Goldman Sachs. How are you, James? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to getting your take on the credit markets. We're also delighted to welcome back Bloomberg's own Lisa Lee. How are you, Lisa?
1: Fine, thank you. Uh,
2: Lisa covers credit markets from London, and it's great to see you again. And from Bloomberg Intelligence, it's great to see David Havens, uh,
0: who's based in New York. How are you, David? I'm very good. Looking forward to a little bit of snow here tomorrow.
2: So let's start with you, James. Welcome. We've spent a lot of time on this show talking uh, to private debt investors about what's widely being described as a golden age for this very fast-growing market. The so-called non-banks are really very excited about the opportunity. Everyone from KKR and Apollo to BlackRock is all over it. It's all the rage. Uh, you're in a somewhat different position though given your firm's attachment to what we would call a traditional lender though of course Goldman Sachs is not really a, t- a typical retail bank um, so I just wanted to kind of start um, by talking about the opportunity as you see it um, and what's the Goldman Sachs edge when you think about private credit?
3: Thank you, thank you for um, having me and asking uh, the, the, the question and I, I would start by maybe stepping back um, and saying that you know, we have been in this market since 1996 uh and you know for the last 27 years uh we've really um enjoyed an explosive growth in uh, in private credit and direct lending in particular and so whilst um you know some participants talk about a golden age i think it has been really uh, the last three decades um an amazing um uh, opportunity for for direct lending and and certainly we've uh, we've witnessed and i joined this business 24 years ago and we have uh, witnessed a lot of growth uh, across a number of strategies and, and also uh, regions, um, you know where um, where is our edge? I think certainly you know as I started by saying you know having been around for a long time you know being time tested through a number of cycles. Uh, clearly, the origination platform I would say is uh, is a real edge uh, at at Goldman. It's how we work, uh, really hand in glove with um, you know thousands of uh, investment bankers. All around the world, that that day-to-day connectivity, the trust that we established on both sides of, of our teams, really that that is being transcended by uh, the One GS, uh, which which is a huge priority. that uh, you know our executive office launched a few years ago to really formalize uh, what is effectively a way to collaborate across uh, across teams and across divisions, and something that you know we've done very well, I think, uh, in the last three decades between our private credit. Uh, investing team and, and all the other um, uh, groups uh, at, at the firm. And I think it does give us an edge uh, when we're, um, you know, dealing with you know private equity owners of companies or management teams. I think the ability to, uh, to bring the firm uh, is something that uh, we've, we've refined over time. And I think we're doing uh, well and, and certainly is um, appreciated by the private equity uh, community, but also uh, not only, but also by, uh, by our investors. I think they do recognize that the origination platform is um, highly differentiated. So
1: James, Goldman Sachs is sort of unique among the global banks for having a really strong leveraged finance group that raises capital from high yield bonds and leveraged loan market, as well as a really sizable direct lending platform that can do multi-billion dollar deals or at least participate in them. So as direct lending gets bigger and bigger and starts eroding into some of the 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 investment banking share of the market. How does Goldman Sachs navigate that, and, and and as other banks try to sort of play into private credit, what how do you see that evolving?
3: Sure, and thanks, Lisa. And, and for us, that's not a new phenomenon again because we've been operating very large vehicles for uh, for a long time. And so the the ability to uh, to work well with our leverage finance colleagues, I think, is you know back to the edge. I think that that's one of uh, the edge that we have this ability to, uh, to go and pitch together uh, mandates and, and also kind of work together on large capital structures uh, so that maybe we'll anchor part of the capital structure or maybe we'll, we'll anchor the junior part of the capital structure when you know the firm may underwrite uh, another part of, uh, of that structure. know that ability to provide capital solutions to uh, sponsors and, and, and companies, is something that is truly unique. And there are situations like take private where confidentiality is is critical and so if you can effectively um speak to one party that can do you know the entire financing either on our own or together with leverage finance and maybe also you'll get um the advisory from from goldman i i think you know having that kind of capital complete capital solution and advisory solution is uh, is certainly very very different uh, and so we're, we're used to dealing with this um actually i think you know we um we, we, we make the other side better and they make our side uh, better. And so that's, uh, that's very complimentary uh, to, uh, to have both uh, at, at Goldman. You know, we, we've noticed that other banks are also uh, f- trying to figure out how to deal with, uh, with private credit and, and direct lending. And every bank has, you know, a different way maybe of, uh, of dealing with it. But I would say, you know, private credit is a force to reckon with. It's going to stay. Uh, it's large today. It's approaching two trillion. So you have um,
2: about $110 billion in assets right now, dollars, um, and you want to double that. What's the time frame to get there um, and, and how do you get there?
3: <laughs> and we have, We've not set a time frame, uh, but we're certainly ambitious here um, in our leadership team and, and, and all our colleagues and, and, and we see great opportunities to, uh, to grow and it comes from various um, uh, strategies and I would say across uh, different regions. Right, and so if you think about our our platform, by the way, has doubled in the last uh, four years already to where we are today. Uh, we continue to, uh, to 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 be in the market on a number of um, uh, strategies. Um, I think in the U.S., um, you know, we're getting into larger financings. I think that's one way to grow, which is to continue to penetrate the leverage finance market, right? And and as you know, as as we do it, maybe you know, either on our own or certainly, or you know, maybe. In, in club deals, you're seeing some of these uh, private financings getting to sizes which, you know, frankly, maybe five years ago, would have been difficult to, um, well, certainly difficult to execute and, and and maybe even to imagine. And so that's one way to grow here, uh, which is you know just getting a, a higher share of wallets of the entire uh, leverage finance market. Uh, but we're launching new strategies. We're going into new regions. Um, you know, Asia is uh, is an area of growth for us. Uh, we continue to um, to deploy a lot of capital in Europe, for instance. Uh, even at times when um, M&A is slow, um, we have the luxury of having a very large uh, portfolio, uh, 600 plus portfolio companies, and so staying close to these companies provides us with uh, lots of opportunities to continue to deploy in this portfolio, what we call the incumbency edge. Uh, and certainly in 2023, a lot of what we have deployed dollar-wise came, came from that portfolio. And then you know, we, we have other ideas uh, when it comes to uh, private IG. That's an area that we would like to, uh, to grow and get uh, more into. And, and we think we have, again, uh, an edge here, uh, given that uh, we're, we're a bank and, and so we, uh, we, we tend to traffic uh, in the kind of large corporate worlds or mid-market corporate worlds.
2: In terms of the Asia opportunity that you, you mentioned, um, is that more on the lending side? and in, in which case, which countries you mostly focus on? Which sectors?
3: Yeah, I'm talking about uh, credit here. And, and look, we, we've been in Asia for a long time. Um, we've been in Asia for a long time um, using our balance sheet initially and then gradually transitioning away from only using the balance sheet to having alignment of balance sheets uh, alongside third-party capital. And so we've announced uh, a few months ago a partnership. Um, we are active, uh, I would say, pretty much across Asia. Um, we, we have teams there, by the way, located in, in the major markets. Obviously, Gorman has been a formidable presence in Asia for a very long time, um, multi-multi-decade. I think probably one of the, uh, or if not the first, um, major U.S. investment bank, and so we benefit from having this network um, and having these long-standing relationships with also the uh, the corporates there. Uh, sectors, I think, when when it comes to our direct lending business, which you know we we tend to really, um, I would say, stick to our knitting around avoiding defaults, right? And so the the sectors in which we invest whether it's in the US, in Europe or in Asia, they tend to be quite defensive and uh, recession resilient. And you'll see the same whether we invest in Australia or, or in India. And then we have other strategies where we look for maybe higher risk, but we're getting paid for it. And there in those strategies, hybrid strategies, then we've gone into more cyclical sectors in Asia, including hospitality or, um other type of um more i would say cyclical uh maybe retail uh sectors or um you know we've we've invested in a golf course uh well the largest operator in uh, in japan for instance we've looked at the number of other i would say probably a a, a bit different uh and trying to bring uh capital solutions always to these uh, corporates and the owners of those companies
2: in terms of fundraising, I mean, to get those assets over 200 billion, what's your first port of call these days? Are you flying more to Dubai or is it Toronto or is it Sydney? Where are you going? What's
3: interesting about this environment is, and it's helpful to have many voices, by the way, to have you know competitors, peers, other platforms talk about private credit so that you know, they can also educate the market and, and educate LPs. Um, and so to your question, we're, we're flying and I'm flying everywhere uh literally i mean 2023 was a um a heavy year of fundraising for us a, a successful one um and, and the nature of um our investor base is very uh diversified i think that's one of the strengths of, of our platform uh you know institutions pension funds insurance companies sovereigns uh but also wealth management clients and 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 we're fortunate to to have also uh, long-standing and loyal LPs on our platform. I mean, again, it's back to our roots. We started in the 90s and, you know, when we launched our uh, first senior direct lending fund in 2000 uh, early 2008, we uh, we were heavy um, heavily invested or heavily uh, partnered up with um, European pension funds. And, and today we're really diversified um, across, across the world. And what's interesting here is that we're still... Getting a lot of new investors, new logos, and uh, that that's really important because I, we think that if we do a good job at delivering the returns, having you know this kind of close intimate relationship with our investors, hopefully they will want to continue to uh, to be with us. and and we take a long term view here. Uh, yeah, as I said earlier, I've, I've been doing this for 24 years, and, and we take the long-term view. We want to make sure that we provide a good customer experience to our investors.
0: Hey James, it's uh, David Havens here. Uh, switch it up a little bit. Big picture question. Goldman Sachs sits at sort of the nexus of just about everything in global finance, except for maybe sort of the mass affluent market. Um, you've got you know, investment banking contacts, contacts, private wealth. Uh, uh limited partnerships etc cetera, etc cetera. there've been a number of incentives and disincentives that have caused the the corporate credit market to change over the course of the last 5 10 20 years or so w- where do we stand today like isn't it the job of banks to lend to to companies i went through a credit training program at chemical bank <laughs> way back when and that's what we used to do but it doesn't seem like banks do that much anymore
3: i i think they still uh, do that job, by the way, maybe in a slightly different form or, um, maybe slightly different, um, strategies, but, uh, uh, we're not saying by the way that, you know, the banks will, will, will stop being in the market. I actually uh, think, you know, when we started in 07 or 08 and we would do a financing, um, alongside us, if we are not the sole lender, we would have banks. And, and I think, you know, now you see actually these, this type of collaboration partnership come back. Um, and and you know there are situations that are totally private with a club deal of uh, direct lenders and others that you know I could well see banks work with direct lenders, and so um, I, I think you'll continue to see you know l- lending to good corporates uh, to high quality companies is is a good business. Obviously the banks um, have gone through a number of regulation uh, in in the US and and in Europe that we've had to uh, to comply with and adapt to ourselves. But I, I do think that you could see, um, you know, this kind of um, collaboration work uh, between, uh, between banks and, uh, and, and other forms of, um, of capital. Okay, thank you. And certainly, that. you know, that we, we bring that to our advantage internally, as I was saying earlier, you know, to the question around the edge, we, uh, we bring it to our advantage. The, the, the one thing that has changed maybe between when I started in 2000 and, and today, look, the, the banks have incredible origination platforms. Right, and we certainly benefit from uh, from it at at Goldman Sachs. Um, but when I started, maybe twenty plus years ago, the banks would hold more on their balance sheets, whilst you know maybe they started you know the, the movement from under from holding on the balance sheet to underwriting and syndicating, and that that movement we've seen probably in the early 2000s. I think the banks today, whilst they continue to be very active in in certainly in direct lending. Um, they probably hold less on their balance sheets. To uh, to be fair, and then you know that that would that would depend. Yeah, exactly. Also
0: from uh, from banks to banks. Exactly, and I, and I think that according to some of the data that we have at Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, it looks like 2022-23 uh, was actually the first year where non non uh, non bank financial institutions uh, made more loans to uh, to corporations than than banks actually did, which is which is interesting. So I think that
3: that's right, and and also I mean the market has been dislocated. Yes. Let's face it, right? I mean, we we are in between markets. Yeah. And and, we we came from 2021, lots of activity, and then rates suddenly uh, shot up and and that really shook up the fixed-income market, hence the banks were not as active.
1: James, to your point that banks used to hold more of this lending, when I look at the direct lending market, it looks eerily similar to the early days of the leverage low market where banks used to hold more and things didn't trade. So, when you look forward to direct lending, do you expect trading activity to start picking up? I know there is some trading just for liquidity purposes, but more of that and perhaps at differing levels. And if that happens, then what happens to the liquidity premium that you guys enjoy?
3: And, and thanks, Lisa. I think, first of all, when, when we commit capital, we have pre syndicated it, right? It's by having fundraised. And, and our investors, uh, in particular, the institutional investors—they're uh, patient. This is patient capital, right? This is long-term patient capital, and so we don't have the need to uh, go and sell our positions, right? I mean, we can hold on to our loans for a very long time, um, and and so that—that's a major advantage of uh, of direct lenders, for instance. Now, what you may see at the at the start, you know, when you put together a financing, is that a lot of our investors quite enjoy having co-investment opportunities. And so we, we may commit for a bit more with a view that uh, some of our um, key large um, LPs uh, could get access to a co-investment opportunities this way. Um, I think to the point that you're making, and very similar to what we have seen in the private equity industry, as we saw the explosive growth of private equity, and as a result, you know the first derivative is gonna be secondary. And I think you're going to see, um, you know, the, the the start, and it's already started. And I think it's going to be a much much larger business, of a credit secondary asset class. Uh, by the way, you know, you, you start hearing about maybe some LPs uh, that would like maybe to uh, sell positions, and you know, there's there's a growing market here, um, and, and so. Whilst the underlying uh, is uh, illiquid, I think at the LP level, I think you are going to see a growth of credit secondary where LPs can effectively find liquidity uh, in, this, in this way as well. right? And um, we're, we're quite excited actually about this uh, market development. When you have an asset class that is getting close to $2 trillion, mm-hmm. you're certainly going to see you know, some, uh, some more strategies kind of uh, flourishing out of this uh, growth. Right,
0: and we've we've also obviously, as as you mentioned, we've seen quite a bit of growth. uh, Words probably come up quite a bit in this conversation. Uh, Private equity credit, I'm sorry, private credit has kind of gone mainstream. Maybe you can spend a few minutes talking about terms and conditions, how you're seeing terms and conditions in the market uh, evolving as newer entrants come in, as sort of new quote unquote technologies are employed in the private credit space.
3: Absolutely, and, and and to to the point you just made around mainstream. I think you know it, we collectively need to just demy- demystify what we do, um, which is in simple words, you know, uh, lending to uh, to corporates. And um, but yeah, look, the the terms and conditions they do vary depending on uh, market conditions, right? And so if you uh, you need to step back and look at long period of time, you know, ten, twenty years, and. Um, you certainly see a direct correlation of um, the activity of direct lending with the issuance of loans, right? So that really means that even when the banks are back underwriting, you have certainly more volume in the market, more MA activity, more volume. I think that's overall good for, um, for the industry as well. Uh, when, when you see um, a drop in loan issuance, when the markets turn more volatile, uh, and less MA activity. What you see is, you know, less volume in direct lending, but you see somewhat, um, uh, higher, you know, pricing, maybe wider, uh, origination fees. And, uh, I would say probably we as an industry have more leverage when we negotiate documentation. Um, and so the documentation tends to be maybe be tighter, um, in, in those kind of cycles. Uh, where volatility is uh, is hitting. I mean, as we saw the the rates increase, for instance, in 2022, what happened is um, sponsors management teams were very focused on leverageability of these assets. Hence, you know, what's the true cash flow generation coming out of the corporate and how much you know kind of quantum of debt can these corporates effectively sustain. Uh, and what you saw as a result was lower leverage levels for um the crop of deals that happen i would say from mid 2022 and the subsequent year and a half and so th- those those terms you know they they tend to uh, to vary very much dependent on uh, market volatility and market conditions
2: so as you know um james you've been doing this a while um typically what blows up in finance is what's just been growing the most quickly um private credit is growing very quickly we've had a lot of guests on this show talking about you know red flags the speed of the market's growth it's already bigger than the u.s high yield bond market which took a lot longer to get there plus the lack of transparency and liquidity and the risks of companies just falling behind on debt payments as rates stay high for much longer than people had expected um there's also the fear that new entrants will spoil the party you know the the so-called private debt tourists will do bad underwriting that ends in tears um, and some people are just calling it a bubble so you know what do you think about that <laughs> it's a
3: lot of a uh, lot of themes here um well, i think at the core of um direct lending uh, it's all about credit uh, discipline underwriting discipline um and um you know we've been doing this for 27 years if if you stick to lending to very high quality businesses and and the discipline and and, and you don't lose that discipline you don't get the the fomo um, you know, our experience, you know, through those more volatile environments or even crises like the GFC, you know, the, these, uh, these corporates that tend to be more resilient have certainly um, proven to be the case. Um, and so will, will we see more dispersion? Absolutely, we will. Um, you know, there's been very little dispersion for about 10 years uh, as, the, as the rates were low or even negative. And so I think you know in this environment of the system, you know, kind of receiving a, a shock, a sudden shock, I think you'll see that um, managers will fare very differently. Over time, it will be um, it will be seen in their ability to raise capital, and and it's no different than you know when I started. You know, there were names on the private equity that don't exist anymore, right? And so I, I think you're going to see you know more of that. Obviously, this is. This, these are the private markets, uh, things tend to, to take some time. Another advantage that you have as a lender uh, is that you can, uh, if things don't go according to plan and, and as a um, you know a default, a lender can also take over an asset and then continue as, as, a, as the owner of the asset. And so that, that's why I think to play out and be able to say, well, this was a good vintage or not, and, and this is what the average prior pre- credit returns have been. We'll, we'll have to have another podcast probably in about uh, eight to 10 years.
2: Now we're going into you know, the slower economy, um, earnings are suffering, rates are, sc- are still going to stay high. Is this a tougher environment than let's say last year or the year before?
3: I wouldn't say so. Um, when we look at the performance of our portfolio companies, uh, it remains um, very resilient. And it's really surprised us to uh, on the upside, I would say, um, including, you know, I would say around 2021 when inflation was uh, was running very high, and part of 2022, we we saw our companies in particular having pricing power and having the ability to maintain their um, uh, operating margins. So I wouldn't say that it's a, it's a more complicated. Um, environments given the, kind of the the slowdown in, in, in the macro. That is not what, uh, what we're experiencing in our portfolio, for instance.
1: James, you recently got a new title, Global Head of Direct Lending. When you look at US and Europe and you look at the opportunities there, especially as inflation seems to be moderating at a different pace between the two regions, where do you see the better opportunities?
3: I, I wouldn't say better opportunities, but certainly I would say, in terms of um, size of the opportunity set, right now clearly the U.S. market has woken up and shown signs of activity earlier than the European market. So, starting in June of last year, July, we started seeing a lot of um, uh, processes, um, you know, buyers and sellers kind of agreeing price, and and hence, you know, the second half of the year for us was very busy in particular in the U S it's, it's also a bigger market size wise. Um, and so we're very active across the world, but I would say probably, uh, in the last six months and and getting into 2024, we're seeing more opportunities in the U S. Now, if I step back and I look at 2023, 60% of our deployment globally happened in Q4. Right. And so you can see the uptick of activity. And I think everybody's talking, you know, CEO banks are also talking and seeing that, you know, certainly working with our m a colleagues, uh, we sense you know, a renewed optimism here about uh, activity in the US, but also but also in Europe. Uh, and, and we tend to see that activity very early on, given that, you know, we have our colleagues kind of winning mandates for sales side by side. And usually it takes six months for those deals to, uh, to happen. So I think I'm, I'm optimistic that 2024 um, could be a, a more active year in terms of deployment. As I said earlier, it's all about uh, deploying well and, and being disciplined. So it's not about the volume, uh, but I, I, you know, I see our teams and the pipeline across various regions really having stepped up in the last uh, couple of quarters. So
1: MA FT is picking up. So when should we start to see some big MA, and especially LBO deals, which require quite a bit of financing to get done? When should we start seeing those announced?
3: Look, in, in all fairness, we've, we've already started seeing uh, deals being announced in, in Q4, uh, certainly in the U.S., but also uh, in, in Europe. There were a number of uh, situations announced, public to private, for instance. But, uh, you know, it, it, it takes time for, for these processes to play out. And I think what happened in 2022, 2023 is that usually you would have a, a gap between, you know, the buyer and the seller and, um, you know, that gap remains. And I think certainly anecdotally, when I looked at the number of situations in Q4, it seemed that, you know, buyers and sellers were getting much closer in terms of, uh, their, uh, respective expectations to transact. I think that bodes well. I think on on top of this, given the lack of harvest and exit in the last 18 months for the private equity industry, certainly their investors, their LPs, are also demanding some, uh, you know, what's called DPI, so distribution. And so, and and if the rates, you know, go down, which, you know, might be the expectations of um, experts, I think, you know, you you, you have a number of uh, factors that certainly could fuel. Uh, higher activity in 2024
2: this year um, James do you expect the default rates in private credit to be higher or lower than last year
3: it's it's a difficult question but um, the the, you know plus you know we we don't have a crystal ball so no idea what may happen in the market and what what shock you know we may see or not see so um, but usually the default happen after you know a few years uh, of, of stress in the company. They, they, they rarely happen overnight, although certainly when everybody went into lockdown in uh, March 2020, um, it, it created a sudden shock, but that, that's unusual, I would say. Usually you have some sort of red flags for a while before a, um, a company um, um, declares an effective uh, default. And I think in the market there's been a steady but slow uh increase in default rates um across sectors by the way um not, not necessarily only linked to uh, you know the cyclicals and so on across sectors we're monitoring carefully i think you know more importantly we're focused on our portfolio uh and making sure that our companies are healthy and 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 so far touch wood but uh, that is certainly the case
2: and when you look across everything that you um currently cover which is a lot what is the best opportunity for 2024? Um, You know, you can talk about sectors, you can talk about regions, talk about country if you want, Um, but as specifically as possible, if you had to put your money somewhere
3: in private credit this year, where would it be? Uh, You know, we we love all our kids. Um, and we put our money, we try to put it everywhere. Uh, as, as employees, you know, we invest in, in, in a lot of different strategies. And um, I'm not trying not to answer the question, but I, that, that is really what we're doing here. We're pursuing a number of strategies existing where we're trying to be bigger and, and new, where we're trying to effectively launch. And we're doing all of this at the same time. We're fortunate that we've got the support of our executive office, uh, I think very openly. Uh, they talk about asset wealth management and private credit in particular, um, and so they're getting used now to uh, answering questions about private credit. It certainly helps us internally to uh, to get uh, support, you know, in, in infrastructure, uh, hiring more, um, and and getting you know the backing of um, of Goldman Sachs.
2: And on the risk, so you you kind of um boil it down to just avoid defaults, which is kind of easier said than done. Is there a specific weak link in the system? Is there a weak sector or a you know weak kind of borrower that you really have to avoid?
3: I wouldn't say so. Uh, and, and also various strategies may have various risk appetites and, and hence also expected returns. So I, I wouldn't say so, but certainly on on the performing direct lending sides, where I was saying earlier that, you know, the, the name of the game is, is really to avoid default, because that's how effectively your returns will be measured. Eventually, we, we tend to stick to um, stable and defensive sectors and, and not really um, look at uh, the, the, the cyclicals or not even wanting to price cyclicals. Great stuff. James Reynolds,
2: Global Head of Direct Lending at Goldman Sachs. Great to have you on the Credit Edge. Thank you very much. And please do yeah. come back on the show and all the best for 2024. Um, Also want to say a big thanks to Lisa Lee of Bloomberg News in London. Brilliant to have you again. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much.
2: So David Havens with Bloomberg Intelligence in New York, you look at the BDCs, the business development companies. They're all going public now. What's that all about? Is this the top? Is this the end of
0: private credit? Is it all downhill from here? What's going on? Well, I, I guess it depends on who you ask. There are some people that will, if you were to liken it to, uh, to a baseball game, um, some people would say we're, we're not even in the, in the first inning yet. We're still in spring training in terms of uh, where we are in a nine-inning baseball game. Other people will say that, uh, that the cycle uh, could be problematic, particularly if we're in a recession or have a recession. Uh, why is money coming into the sector? I think money is coming into the sector because it's performed well. Uh, default rates across BDCs, which are about $250 billion in total assets right now, have been minimal, which uh, I think comes as a surprise to, to many observers, uh, given the move that we've had in rates, the, the stress that that places on interest costs for highly leveraged uh, companies. The, as- the investments that they've made have held up well, and uh, I think that there's a general view that, that private credit has gone mainstream. And uh, BDCs are a way for, uh, for uh, private investors, public investors, to, uh, to play the credit market and earn a nice, uh, a nice dividend in the process.
2: So the IPOs aren't a sign necessarily of a top, it's just um, these BDCs, is it a chance for them to raise funding more cheaply or more efficiently elsewhere?
0: It's, uh, I think that what we're seeing is uh, companies want to, uh, they, they see a growth opportunity and uh, they want to diversify their sources of capital as much as possible. So having access to public capital markets gives them a, uh, a currency that they can use to, uh, to grow further, that they can use to, uh, to uh, make acquisitions. Uh, so it's a dynamically growing uh, segment, and you tend to see companies uh, tap the public markets when, uh, when you've got some dynamic growth going on.
2: So you were on the call just now with uh, James Reynolds with um, Goldman Sachs, head of direct lending there. He sounds very positive to me, very bullish. Um, he seems to not think it's um, a bubble or, or a risky market right now. Obviously, um, he's, you know, in the game of, of telling people it's, it's it's growing because he's trying to raise assets. But from your perspective, um, David, is it is it riskier than he's making it seem? It's risky.
0: Uh, risky doesn't mean that you're going end that it's going to end in tears necessarily. Risk means that there's risk and if you can manage that risk, uh, then you can do quite well. Uh, Goldman certainly seems to have the uh, the intellectual horsepower and experience to, uh, to manage credit risk. Very well, and it's done so for a number of years. Uh, the way that I like in it too is is that if you sort of think about the credit markets as as one gigantic ski hill, you've got expert terrain and you've got a uh, you've got uh, terrain for uh, for low risk players. Low risk players might take the magic carpet, and that would be the government bond market or the muni market or something high grade uh, investment grade credits. Uh, the BDcs and private credit, to some extent, are, are on the double black diamonds. They're uh, they're going down areas where there are cliffs, but they're prepared. Uh, they've been through this before. They, they're familiar with the terrain. Um, there's always danger out there, but if you're familiar with the terrain and you've got the capabilities, you can manage that risk. Usually, and you know, that's what that's that seems to be what's going on right now. The biggest risk, from my point of view, is is an exogenous factor. Is some sort of geopolitical, you know. Uh, thing that we haven't anticipated yet so it's 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 if you're looking out for buses that are going to hit you uh in credit you're going to see the buses coming it's the one that you don't see that's going to cause the problem so right now we see it seems to me that we see a lot of the buses out there
2: wise words and it's also skiing season so those analogies hit home thank you so much david havens at bloomberg intelligence and we look forward to reading all of your analysis on the bloomberg terminal thank you james And thanks also to James Reynolds, Global Head of Direct Lending at Goldman Sachs. It was great to have him on the Credit Edge. We look forward to having him back. And to Lisa Lee with Bloomberg News in London. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google and Spotify. Give us a review, tell your friends or email me directly at jcrombie8 at bloomberg.net. That's J-C-R-O-M-B-I-E as in my name, the number eight at bloomberg.net. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you join us again next week on The Credit Edge.